After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Hi, and welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. And I'm Raghu Marcus, and it's the uh, start of a new year, 2013. We made it. And uh, this is the uh, first podcast of the year. So um, it's interesting because. Uh, I went to a New Year's party the other night, New Year's Eve party. I never go to New Year's Eve parties. It was a pretty small affair and uh, very friendly. And I uh, was um, not expecting to uh, participate in the way that uh, um, the host uh, prepared a little... Uh, offering kind of a deal. Um, they had a uh, fireplace outside. It was freezing cold, by the way, here. And I'm in North Carolina in the mountains. And, uh, but, uh, it was about what, uh, what one could give up for the new year, kind of like a resolution and, uh, and, and so on. What, what aspirations one might have for the new year. Now, um, no, I get a little bit shaky around new agey kind of uh, stuff, which is uh, part of what I'm going to talk about now because it's about judgment. And interestingly enough, I came upon a talk Ramdas gave and uh, full circle into that particular thing that I personally would love to give up. Um, it's, this of course is, uh, nothing can be given up until you're absolutely done with it, which is why we're here, which is, leads me to Ramdas talking about in this particular talk, um, talking about history, our story, his story, her story, history, her story. Uh, it's basically the storyline of our predicament and, and our lives are the unfolding of that storyline. Uh, and we uh, use life exper life's experiences as a way to disprove a basic negative experience of oneself. Interesting thought. Uh, but uh, what we come to, of course, is an appreciation, appreciating our unfolding 
in a way that is devoid of judgment. It's an appreciation of what is. Boy, words I need to hear. Uh, and, you know, and he, one great example is when you're in the woods, uh, you don't judge one tree from another. One's fat, one's slim, one's beautiful branches, one's ugly. But as soon as you're in contact with humans, immediately we go into judging mode. And, and basically, of course, we all do that out of our own insecurity. Um, so his little message here was, is to appreciate uh, human, your humanity. And, and, and there's uh, a lot of talk around... Um, he, he gives great examples of I'm Ramdas, therefore everyone thinks I'm going to be calm and loving and full of equanimity. Meanwhile... Some of the time I feel like screaming at people and just the juxtaposition of all of that is a, a humorous part. But uh, this judgment stuff is really key for most of us, if not all of us. You know, we come into contact with each other and immediately set up uh, a, uh, a whole storyline that emanates from our storyline, whatever the things that are have uh, affected us in our lives, from our parents to our environment, to our school, to our friends, everything, to our karmic predilections regarding our health and so on, all of it uh, feeds that place which uh, sends us into a uh, duality, the duality of, of judging, of, of looking at somebody and even before you even say a word, you're assuming all sorts of things, which are just projections. So it's a it's a wonderful talk uh, around that. And it was uh, on New Year's Eve. That was one thing when this came up as a sort of uh, New Year's Eve party favor kind of deal. Uh, but very sincere. It was very sincere. And I love sacrificial fires. And I threw my judgments into that fire and... Um, holding on for dear life. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, but I, I love, uh, so as this goes along, I, I love uh, what Ramdas is talking about here. Um, you know, when we talk about just an appreciation of who we are, an appreciation of the unfolding of our story, um, you know, and, and there's a risk in, in being human, but, you know, that, that whole thing, of course, he was such a champion of being human and, and offering us, and way back when, when I, then, when I first met him, the opportunity to, to look at ourselves with a sense of humor because he took a big risk being human and talking about his foibles and so on. So, um, but ultimately, and this is, this is a real beauty, what we offer each other is our truth. And our truth includes all of our stuff. And just, you know, again, it's the allowing to, to be a human being. The way to God or to truth is through acknowledging the fullness of where we find ourselves to be, which is both our humanity and our divinity. And don't we just, day to day, we just run into that. The polarization of being human and yet aspiring to be free 
of attachments and, and everything else that's holding us down that's creating uh, this sense of separation, which creates this immediate judgment of those around us. Uh, it's um, it it absolutely the 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 issue here is we can't be living completely. You know, we aspire to be better human beings, right? But we can't live beyond who we are now. So the so the balance between accepting ourselves and aspiring to know ourselves more fully in in a soul way, you know, having that awareness, there, there's a balance, you know, there's a balance of not being too far ahead of us. I know I've gone through that my whole life of, you know, uh, assuming, wanting to be a little further along than I was and therefore not accepting it. So that's a, an interesting dilemma and a good dilemma for us to work with, I think. So... A, a lot of uh, good thoughts here um, in in this particular talk around that subject. What else is here? I made some notes. Um, this is all great for me to be able to uh, go through this material. Again, I've said this before. You'd think I've heard it all before since um, I've known Ram Dass, uh, a long, long time and listened to a lot of different lectures, either there, live, or whatever. Um, he talks a little bit about um, the idea of emptiness and the idea of love. Basically, the Buddhist concept of emptiness and the, you know, the hin Hindu concept of bhakti, you know, devotional love of God. And and I love this particular thing because. Um, he talks about a Zen master he met, and he just sit with this guy, and just they connect with each other in that space, which ultimately goes beyond the uh, the ideas we have about what emptiness is. Gee, it's a negative, and what love is to a Buddhist that's kind of frivolous, you know. So they got through that, and they had the. He talked about the joy of being together in a church tremendous appreciation of real emptiness you know and that emptiness in, was synonymous with what love really is and and they got into that place without you know dispensing with the nomenclature as we should say um and and lastly uh this particular thing that caught me the you know the, there's many paths up the mountain and they all look pretty different, as we just described. But at the top, they are not different. They become one. And here's a little, uh, a little poem about that. Emptiness and presence, truth, beauty, and heart, in that fullness and richness, it's all one. Well, that's what Maharaj used to say to us almost every day. Sabek in Hindi means it's all one. Anyhow, that uh, the the uh, talk ends on something terrific. He's uh, I don't know. Many of you may know some some many of you may not know about um, Ramdas's experience with Emmanuel. 
a disembodied being who came through this uh, Pat Rodegast, who's a friend of Ram Dass's, who recently passed. And, uh, and as Ram Dass said, I don't care who gives me any kind of uh, teachings or any kind of uh, offering. All I know is what affects me and helps me to move forward. I don't care if they have a body or they don't. And this, uh, the, the, he, he reads some of this stuff. I actually have never heard this. Uh, but it starts out with something. What does the voice of fear whisper to you? Wow. Ominous. But listen to the whole thing and very revealing. So those are the first words. Here are the last words from Emmanuel that Ram Dass reads. Fear is the frightened child. Love is the flame of holy remembering. Isn't that great? Love that. So uh, onward and forward. Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, thanks for your support in 2012. Not only for this podcast, but for Ramdas.org and the Love Serve Remember Foundation. Uh, and please do continue. We can only uh, do what we're doing. All of these things, podcasts and uh, videos, books, CDs. I mean, we have all sorts of great things planned this year. I hope you all did manage to see Cultivating Loving Awareness with Ramdas, Krishna Das. Sharon Salzberg, Salzberg and Mirabai Bush, and we filmed the last retreat we just did, uh, Open Your Heart Retreat, in a few weeks ago, and that's going to come soon, too. So all of this requires all of our support, um, and we, we hope you continue to uh, donate to the Foundation. Thank you again, and here we are, Ramdas, here and now. I could see the the whole incarnation. If I'm quiet enough, I can see his storyline. I mean, history is his story, or her story, you know. And her story is just the storyline of our predicament. And it's a finding a place in yourself from which you see the unfolding of law that. Dad did this, mother did this, economics did this, education did this, opportunity did this, drugs did this, Maharaji did this. All of this uh, cause and effect of previous incarnations, all of it is just an unfolding of a storyline, a drama, the Ramdas story. There he is. How will it come out? How did it come out? And you're just sort of watching this story unfold. It has nothing to do with me. Because I'm not that. That's just a set of phenomena happening. And when you look at yourself as a set of phenomena, what is to judge? I mean, it's no, is that flower less than that? It's just different than that. And you begin to appreciate your uniqueness without it being better or worse. It's just different. And cultivating an appreciation of uniqueness rather than preference is a very good one. And. It's just when you get inside identification with your personality that you get into the judging mode because then you are part of that lawful unfolding. You're not stepping outside of it at all. The witness or the spacious awareness is outside of it. It's another contextual framework. Yeah. As you're more uh, quiet inside so that you notice and you can see your own thoughts uh, a little more clearly, you will see 
your father's voice and your mother's voice and all your education principles, voices inside your head, constantly saying things to you. And you will see that, I mean, what Freud calls the superego. You will see that that judge is inside, that, and you keep giving it power by identifying with it. And you feel yourself at war with yourself, that there's a part of you that's doing it, and then there's a part of you that's judging what you're doing. And as you're quieter, you see the dynamics between the superego, the id, the ego, and you see it all as just phenomena. Because they are phenomena. I mean, as psychologists, I can study those phenomena in another person. Why not study it in myself? And part of what drugs did for me and then meditation did for me and all the spiritual things is it helps me stand back and get outside of it to see it for what it is as just a uh, stuff, stuff, phenomena, phenomena. Questions? <coughs> yes. Ramdas, yes. how can we love ourselves more? Please. Instead of the term, how can we love ourselves more, I'd like to ask, how can we accept ourselves more? Um, that in the way most of us have been socialized, the way in which a child gets, uh, learns, the initial learning, is that um, the parent is under pressure to socialize the child, to make the child socially functional. And in doing that, they, um, they emotionally, whether they intend to or not, reward and punish the, the child for behaviors. And the result is that when that starts very early, before there is a lot of reasoning process between the parent and the child, the child develops certain emotional feelings that certain ways it is in its natural state are not acceptable. And the result is some feelings of unworthiness or inadequacy or something in most human beings as a result of socialization. Very few people ever come through socialization unscathed in some way or other. I mean, that's not an unfair statement, I don't think. Um, so in a way you could see that ego or personality is in a way built upon, and that's where Freud understood it. He saw that the, the, the uh, repression of id or impulse life because of the way the society has to deal with a child's impulses to get it to be socialized usually is left with a feeling that um, somehow I'm bad. I have these things that are not acceptable. And um, so uh, then you build this social structure and often what you end up with is a personality that says, that's constantly looking to the world and other people, do you approve of me? Do you like me? Am I good enough? Am I acceptable to you? And uh, he, have I achieved enough? Here is a, and you get an A for effort and you feel good. And if you don't get the A, it's not like you feel nothing, you feel bad. And it's as if the baseline is negative, not zero. Do you hear the issue that I'm talking about? Now, um, so that you're constantly using your life experiences as a way to disprove a basic negative feeling about yourself. 
that's a very, very common thing in, in social structure and in human development, in ego development. Now, um, so most, many psychological systems, like Freud's system, for example, works primarily with negative going to zero. That's the, the domain that you work with. Right behind that is where the spiritual dimension begins, and that's a part that looks at the universe and just sees it as it is. It doesn't, see, the, the, when you've got a negative thing, the opposite, when you're trying to undo it, you could undo it by emphasizing the positive. Like, if you don't like yourself, you could emphasize, I love myself, which is, how do we love ourselves more, is the question. Or we could say, let's go behind love and hate, and find a place where we merely acknowledge ourselves, where we just allow our humanity. And we hear that there is negativity in us, and there is inadequacy, and we allow ourselves. And the word that I have come up with, I mean, that I'm finding most comfortable to work with, is the word appreciation. That we come to just appreciate what is. It's interesting, uh, the way I've looked at it, is that you go out into the, into the woods, and into the forests and you look at trees and you appreciate the trees you don't say that tree is good and that tree is bad because one tree is fat and one is thin or one is tall and one is short or one is bent and one is straight unless you're in the lumber business <laughs> for the most part you just look at the trees and you you appreciate them the way they are they are what they are, and you can appreciate them, but the minute you get near humans, it's interesting that you immediately go into a judging mode. You come into better and worse, and you do that out of your own insecurity. You do that out of your own need constantly to be reassuring yourself. So you're saying that person is got more hair than I do, or that person is is see that's the one I picked. So uh, I wonder why that or. Or you go into, uh, you find dimensions constantly judging and equating, am I as good as, am I equal to, am I as good a mother, as, am I as beautiful a woman, am I as effective a this, a, a worker, am I, whatever it is, whatever dimension. And you get caught in constantly living in a judging realm. And um, if you start to practice seeing people as trees, I don't mean in the, uh, you know, in the sense of just appreciating what they are, including yourself. You're just starting to appreciate yourself, appreciate your humanity. Like when I get, like I'm supposed to be, I'm Ram Dass and I'm, I've worked on myself, and I'm supposed to be equanimous, loving, present, clear, uh, compassionate, um, accepting. Oftentimes, I get tired, I'm angry, I'm petulant, I'm closed down. Now, for a long time, I get into those states and I would feel really embarrassed because that isn't who Ram Dass is supposed to be. So, I would appear like I was warm, charming, equanimous, compassionate, and I, there was deviousness and deception involved. And then I realized that, that is, that's bad business because that cuts us off from each other. And I had to risk my truth. I had to risk being human with other people and realize that what we offer each other is our truth. And our truth includes all of our stuff. And the first thing I had to do was accept my own truth. 
I had to allow myself to be a human being. And um, I think that I was very helped by my spook friend, Emmanuel, who, um, uh, my disembodied friend, who, when I said to him, Emmanuel, what am I doing on Earth? He said, why don't you try, uh, you're in, on Earth, why don't you try taking the curriculum? Why don't you try being human? And <laughs> I had always assumed the way to God was to deny your humanity and embrace your divinity. And then I realized that the way to truth might be through acknowledging the fullness of where I found myself to be, which was my humanity and my divinity. And not wallow in it, but acknowledge it and allow it. And not reverence it or judge it, just appreciate it, just allow it, allow my humanity. So I have gotten to the point now where I am what I am much more, and some people like it and some people don't like it. And if they like it, that's their problem. And if they don't like it, that's their problem. I don't take it all on myself and as much. And, um, well, it's a slow process. It's a slow process. Now, what I found was that, that um, as I started to allow myself to be human more, just allowed what I am, things changed much faster in me. I mean, things fell away more quickly. It was as if I was locked into a model which was based on that negativity, that dislike of myself. And once I just allowed that I am human with all the foibles, things started to flow and I could feel change occurring in myself. And then I would start to experience my own beauty. And it frightened me because it was so dissonant and discrepant from the model that I had cultivated of myself over the years. That I had to do good in order to be beautiful. And the idea that I just am, that what is, when you look at a tree or a rock or a river, it is in its own way beautiful. You look at decay, it is beautiful. I know Laura Huxley, who's a very dear friend, um, in her kitchen, she has these jars over the sink and she takes old uh, beet greens and orange peels and things and sticks them in water in these long, beautiful pharmaceutical jars. And then they slowly mold and decay and there are these beautiful decay formations and mold. And it's really garbage. It's garbage as art. And we look at it and it's absolutely beautiful. There's absolute beauty in that. And I've begun to expand my awareness to be able to look at the universe as it is and see what is called the horrible beauty of it. The horrible beauty of it. It's, I mean, there's horror and beauty in all of it because there's decay in all of it. I mean, we're all decaying. I mean, I look at my hand and it's decaying. And it's beautiful and horrible at the same moment. And I just live with that. And with that, I start to see the beauty in it. So we're talking about appreciating what is. Not loving yourself as opposed to not liking yourself, but allowing yourself. And as you allow, it changes. That's about, I think that gets behind the polarities. I think that's what's important. Okay? Question. Uh, I've been aware uh, in myself... There's such good questions, this group, the, you know, we've all come up with. Go ahead. That every time um, I've been able to let go of some fear, it's been in the presence of love. And 
Um, I don't know whether that is me reorganizing my ego structure um, and whether I have to give up my attachment to feeling safe enough to let go of my fear. Is that just a readjustment? Or So is the thing that I'm calling love or feeling as love, love? Um, and what's the relationship between love and fear? I think that the um, term love, uh, which has in it um, uh, two uses of the term, one is as the polarity between love and hate, and that has in it being loving as opposed to hating. It's a, and the other is the a quality or state of being which in which the term love is used in the same way as presence or awareness is that we enter into love into the space of love and I think that love lies behind fear I think that when you are experiencing fear you are caught in your separateness when you're experiencing love you are caught in your unity with all things that love is the verb love is a vehicle of permeating the boundaries and when you experience that opening of the boundaries you feel the quality of love which means a, a flow or energy or merging with the universe around you and that one is obviously the antidote for fear it's going to the place behind your own separateness and the the romantic quality of love which is between separate entities is um, is a doorway into the deeper love. It itself is a lot of people experience a quality they call love but they're doing it with their mind. They're not really opening their hearts fully. They are loving meaning I am attracted to or I am attached to. But it isn't the quality of this kind of liquid merging. And I think the quality of love you're talking about when Emmanuel talks about love versus fear, for example, we are talking about being versus fear, or unity versus separateness would be the other way of saying it. So I would say that when the fear dissipates, you are feeling at home in the universe, meaning your identity with your separateness isn't so overriding your feeling of connection with everything that you're feeling cut off and vulnerable, which is where the root of the fear is. So as you cultivate that unitive quality, then the fear dissipates. So the relation is one between love and fear, but it's not the love in the sense of I love you, it's the sense of we are together in the space of love. Right? Yes. This is um, another question about love and um, opening to love. And in your stories, the ones that always touch me the most and the ones I tell other people are the ones about you being opened by Maharaji. And my favorite one is about the orange and the foot. And um, when I hear these stories, I, I open too. And I love that feeling. And the question is, how does that feeling of opening to love where does it connect with an idea of God? 
if you um, keep seeing, I'm just giving you this now, uh, um, a way of seeing the sequence. If you see the, the new baby open, permeable boundaries, all completely wide open, and then you see the cultivation of its mind and models of itself and other, and development of a sense of separateness, and then you see the way in which we get trapped in that ego or sense of separateness and get trapped with identification with body and with personality, our phenomenal self. And then the interest, the question is how do you awaken out of the illusion that you are only separate? And the doorway out of that is through the heart because the heart is my heart goes out to you the heart is keeps the heart is the doorway into the unitive nature of the universe and it's that the love love flows love doesn't know boundaries the mind creates boundaries the mind creates the boundary of separate me and you the heart just keeps embracing and opening out so that things that open your heart open you out into the universe and allow you to experience the 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 preciousness the grace the 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 sweetness the 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 thick isness of it all the the interconnectedness of it all it's even more than interconnected it's all one thing and just keeps changing its flow and patterns and you're just part of it and the opening of the heart is the doorway into that so that when you love your pussycat or you love your child or you love your beloved or you love nature or you love something that is a doorway you start with that kind of love which is relational romantic love and then that's a doorway that moves you into the kind of merging quality where we are together in love which is in the pre in the oneness of it all in the existence of it all which is god that's the way in which you experience god you experience you are part of the the divine manifestation into form and you're one with it so you start with this very relational love that is between you and something else and it opens the heart and then you in a way go out through the heart and keep feeling a connection as you know when you're in love how suddenly other things look beautiful other than the beloved it keeps going out and out and out and out and that's a quality that um, so I would say that um, most of us stay locked in our separateness and we are very frightened of coming out of it we feel very vulnerable in truth you are not vulnerable at all you just think you're vulnerable who you think you are is vulnerable who you are is not vulnerable it's true this is the truth of it that's what Christ was saying over and over again but nobody seemed to want to hear him but you are not vulnerable, but you experience you are. And so it's very hard for you to open your heart to another being whose love is conditional. Because they're saying, 
I will love you as long as you're a certain way, and that you keep protecting yourself. So you find yourself very easy to open yourself sometimes to an, to um, inanimate objects, or to an animal, or to a memory, or to a, a very young child that's very innocent before it develops any kind of definition of itself that starts to manipulate the universe to get what it needs. Well, when you're with a guru, the guru is realizes they're not vulnerable. They don't need you to do anything. They don't even need you to not shoot them in the shooting example before. They just need you to be what you are. So their love is unconditional. And when you're in the presence of unconditional love, that's the optimum environment for your heart to open because you feel safe because you realize nobody wants anything from you. And the minute that heart opens, you're once again letting in the flow, and that flow is where you experience God. Is that dealing with the question? Yes. Next. I, I always felt God was love. Love was God. And I got a Zen therapist. And he... <laughs> Did you help him? <laughs> now, now, I'm, now I'm kind of floating somewhere over the idea of love's part of a duality and that it goes. And the second part of this is what do you take with you when you go? Is there any sort of information about when you drop your body, what goes with you? Uh, those are two different questions, completely different questions. It's not a second part. Those are two different questions. <laughs> and the second, that question, I'm sorry, goes in another group about illness and dying, so you can't have that. You can only have the first question <laughs> about Zen and love. When I first started to do Vipassana meditation in 1970, I would go and sit with uh, Goenka and Menindra and people like that, and I'd sit for 30, 40 days and um, 10, three or four courses. Um, and I'd come out of it so dry, my heart would be so closed that I just want a bhakti hit. I just want to go to a devotion. I want to go to a devotional place and just sing to God. And um, um, what I've noticed over the years is, and I noticed it most recently when I was sitting in the, in, with my Burmese teacher these three weeks, that by the end of the sitting in which all I was doing was watching the muscle uh, rising and falling in my abdomen and lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, the end of three weeks, I felt closer to Maharaji in love than I had ever felt before. But it wasn't romantic love or I love you it was a quality that, that what the emptiness of Zen, it means empty of the clinging to forms. It doesn't mean empty in the sense of nothing. It means, and it has a quality in which it's said, it is neither, I mean, it's neither empty nor full, as one of the says. There's an experience of intense presence when you get quiet enough. That quality of presence is exactly the same, finally, as the quality of love. 
It's a quality in which it's expansive, so everything is included and yet nothing is standing out or grabbing. But it's all present and you feel emerging and you feel an at-homeness and a warmth and a being with. And that is as much the result. When I'm with a, a Zen master that is a real mensch, you know, a real evolved Zen master, I feel the quality of our joy of being together in our appreciation of nothing, of empty, of the void, if you will. And it's not a feeling, it's not an intellectual appreciation. It's appreciation from inside it. It's, it's as if, uh, and I feel that it's interesting because uh, next week Zalman will be here. Zalman Schachter, who's a very dear friend, and he's a rabbi, and he's, uh, he's in the tradition of uh, excess emotion. I mean, like, you know, there's all, it's all kind of slurpy romanticism. I mean, he's also way beyond that, but he is also out of that tradition. And I can be with him, and I can look in his eyes, and we meet in a place that is so clear and so true and so present that that love so transcends the romantic, melodramatic love that is part of that vehicle. Just as when I meet the Zen master, we meet in that same place with our eyes and our heart, even though his path is a path of asceticism and of denial of not dealing with those, the emotional stuff at all. So I keep reminding you that the paths up the mountain look different, but at the top of the mountain the stuff comes together. And that that emptiness and presence and truth and beauty and heart all are right there. And you can feel the fullness and the richness without the emotional drama. So it's the term love again that's where the, the sticking block is. And love is like a red flag to a Zen, Zenny. You know, just like emptiness is to a Bhakti. What do you mean it's all empty? Yeah. Okay. Um, about this time last year, I think it was, I had what I thought was a really important insight, and it probably was, which was that I'd spent a lot of time thinking that my natural habitat was unhappiness, that that was the natural color of things. So I decided to go for happiness, and I spent time kind of recognizing happiness and embracing it and so on. Um, but thinking about desire systems, it occurred to me that perhaps the desire for happiness is something that I have to let go as well. So, some practical advice, please. I had an interesting time with that because there is a, a in, in Buddhism, one of the things is, may all beings be happy. And in the um, metta meditation we were doing, it's may we be enabled to carry out our lives in peace and happiness. And as long as I kept happiness as the polar opposite of sadness, it was like keeping love as the polar opposite of hate. And then it turns out there's a semantic issue of which level you're using the word at. And to the extent that happiness means being in harmony with what is, meaning being peacefully in relationship to everything that is. 
finally I realized that my happiness isn't based on the situation being this way or that way. My happiness is one which embraces my sadness. Finally, my love is one which embraces my own hate. And that quality of happiness from just being in relationship to the universe as it is, not because it's this way or because it's that way, is this deeper quality of happiness that is what this Buddhist prayer is asking for. So I think what you were doing was playing with the polarity of happiness and sadness. Now you understand finally that the way you look at your sadness is not as something to push away but something to, yes there is sadness in life and my sadness came out of my truth also. See, I mean, when you've come up for air out of a lot of sadness, you want to cling to your happiness. But as long as you're clinging to anything and pushing anything away, you're vulnerable. It's got you. You're always frightened because you're always waiting for the slip and you'll be cast back into sadness. And finally, you have to embrace it into yourself, all of it. So I'd say now that you have learned to be happy, you can turn around and look back at your sadness and start to allow that that's a part of you too until you've embraced all of it into yourself. Is that... Mm -hmm. Any more? Um, just want to read you... Um, this is Emmanuel's new book. And I'm just going to read you a few pages. I just wrote a preface for this book and the preface was called Uncle Emmanuel. And it referred to the fact that I think of Emmanuel as a kind of a nice uncle. I don't think of him as an enlightened being. I think of Emmanuel. Those of you that have never heard of Emmanuel, Emmanuel is a, um, a spirit entity, I think they're called, who is um, channeled, I think is the word, through a woman named Pat Rodegast. As I say, I don't find Emmanuel's wisdom necessarily that, I don't feel he's at all like Maharaji, and I don't feel, I think he's somebody still. But there are many planes of reality other than the physical plane, and there are beings that live on those somebody planes, and they have their work to do too. But his stuff is quite beautiful, and it's been very helpful. To me, that's the final criterion. Does it help me? If it doesn't help me, might be fine, it's just not relevant to me. I've learned to say about spiritual teachers, not that they are wrong, but that I have no business with them. I have no business with Rajneesh. Now, I have no idea who Rajneesh is. Who he is is his karma. All I know is when I go near that, I feel, uh-uh, I don't have any business there. Right? And that's what I've learned to do, which is leaves me free of having to judge everybody all the time. That, that person is wanting. It's just that I don't have business with them. So these are just a few little images from Emmanuel that are kind of sweet. <clears throat> what does the voice of fear whisper to you? Fear speaks to you in logic and reason. It assumes the language of love itself. 
fear tells you, I want to make you safe. Love says, you are safe. Fear says, give me symbols, give me frozen images, give me something I can rely on. Loving truth says, only give me this moment. Fear would walk you on a narrow path, promising to take you where you want to go. Love says, open your arms and fly with me. Every moment of your life you are offered the opportunity to choose love or fear, to tread the earth or to soar the heavens. Why would fear want to oppose truth? Because truth has the power to transform fear. Fear believes it is fighting for its life. I want to say something about the subtle inroads fear can make in your lives. If you no longer allow fear to step blatantly before you and shout of cataclysm, it will creep behind you and whisper something reasonable in your ear. <laughs> Beware of reasonable, th rational thinking, reasonable supposition. Doubt is the rabbit's foot of fear. Ask your higher wisdom if it is not true that without worry you would have arrived exactly where you are now and more pleasantly. <laughs> worry and fear are not tickets on the express train. They are extra baggage. You were going that way anyway. Emmanuel, how can I remain loving when there is so much danger in the world? You are afraid that justice and love are not all they ought to be. You are afraid that if you were to stand open in love, you would receive violence, mockery, humiliation, and destruction. There are those of you who declare the world is real, an eye for an eye. Rules give an illusion of safety. Structure comforts fear. Fear says, put me in a house with a roof and locks on my door and I will believe I am safe for a moment. When you are loving, you are under the open sky and possibilities are infinite. Contrary to Chicken Little's expectation, the sky doesn't hurt. There are no guarantees from the viewpoint of fear. None are strong enough. From the viewpoint of love, none are necessary. I don't really think he answers the question. Okay. Well, that's his problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just read a couple more. I feel my fear has a life of its own. I can't control it or transform it. Perhaps fear needs to be played out. Does this make any sense? Only to fear. See, yeah, I gotta work this out. It lives on the belief that you grant it. There is never a circumstance where fear is not a choice. See, for me, maybe the way I've been dealing with choice, you see that whether you choose fear or love is a karmic matter, but 
you still have the illusion that you're making a choice, so make it. My fear of death is overwhelming. It seems so final, Emmanuel. Death is the greatest gift that your schoolroom offers you. You can assume a bravado and say, of course I have chosen love, and beneath that verbalized choice, fear can still be in control. But when one actually moves to dying, fear can no longer hide. Your fear at this moment is your greatest teacher. When you have heaped all your fears into this one undeniable area of human experience, you will have formulated the arena in which you can work. Address dying, fear, where it cannot escape you. It cannot subtly move away and pretend to be something else. This may not bring you comfort, but bringing you comfort is not my purpose. My purpose is to bring truth. When, without even knowing the meaning of it, you say with every inhalation, I choose love here, I choose love, you will see the light change and the darkness dispel. Your mind may say, I don't understand what happened. All I did was sit here for 15 minutes choosing love. Well, that's all that's required. The lifeline, the golden rope, is to know that there is such a thing as love. And in that moment, you are empowered to choose it. Just that. Even if your heart is breaking and you feel on the edge of collapse, say, I choose love. By this mantra, you silence the lifelong mantra that would choose fear. Then this last one, if I, and if fear seems to follow me, what do I do? Hold fear in one hand, hold love in the other. Holding both, choose love, and choose love again. Fear may call you back, what about me? You answer, yes, fear, I hear you. I choose love. You may be part of human conditioning, but love will always be my choice, for that is the only reality. Fear will shout, but I am truth, listen to me. You reply, my choice lights lies outside of illusion, not within it. Then watch the pyrotechnics of fear. It will tell you that the plane will crash, the food is poisoned, you will be left alone forever. If you enter into any of these scenarios, you are caught. Fear is only a teacher on your planet. Your schoolroom is always held within the hand of perfect love. All the monsters to be created on your planet have already been unleashed, so fear will have no new faces. Oh, perhaps a virus or two. Nothing more. Fear has emptied out its bag of tricks, nuclear destruction, genocide, cancer, AIDS, torture. And still, there is the human heart that seeks to see love. That is the voice of transformation. That is the voice of truth. Fear is the frightened child. Love is the flame of holy remembering. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What do you need to get off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, develop positive coping skills, and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ramdas today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ramdas.